did you know I was in Walmart the other night doing uh, grocery shopping. It was late, it was quiet, not too many people there, perfect time to shop. I kind of know, I've got my whole order down pat. Um, but as I was going through one of the aisles, I think it's where I picked up the giant thing of breadcrumbs or it was early on. Uh, there was this song over the PA system. Uh, I didn't know what it was called, but I found it uh, this morning. Uh, it's called Broken and Beautiful, and it turns out it's by Kelly Clarkson. And trust me, I'll, I'll get to the point. But I was listening to the lyrics, and I'm like, the way she's singing it reminds me of a worship song. Some of the words were kind of like, is it? No, no, no. And then I heard some of the other words, and I'm like, nope. And there's something very off about it. And plus, you know, it's on at Walmart, so it's not like I'm at the Christian bookstore. Um, in fact, I had a dream about a Christian bookstore. I was like, oh, there, there is one. It's not what to visit. I don't know what it was about. But in any event, I'm going to read some of the lyrics to you and bear with me, okay? Because it, it gets to a point, and I think it's interesting because I was going to share this anyway, and I, I think it goes perfectly with what we're talking about today. It says, we're walking on the ocean, turning water into wine. Jesus did those things, right? She says, we bury our emotion and pretend that we're just fine. The only way to live now is to know you're going to fly. Don't listen to the lying liars and their lies. And I, you know, there's a couple things she'll be singing about, but I'm going to go on and read portions of other ones. She says, I got pride. I could roll out for miles in front of me. I don't need your help. I don't need your sympathy. I don't need you to lower the bar for me. I know I'm superwoman. I know I'm strong. I know I've got this because I've had it all along. I'm phenomenal. I'm enough. I don't need you to tell me who to be. And I get it. It's probably some sort of like, you know, I don't need a man to tell me who to be and how to live. I maybe that's what it is. But just listen to the words and listen to the heart in it. It says, don't fix me. Don't try and change a thing. Can someone just know me? Because underneath I'm broken and it's beautiful. Like she's trying not to be fake. And I, I get that aspect of the song. But she's saying, I'm broken. And it's not just it's okay that she's broken or I need help and I'm broken. She's like, I'm broken. And my brokenness is beautiful is what she's saying. She says, I'm tired, can I just be tired without piling on all sad and scared and out of time? I'm wild, can I just be wild without feeling like I'm falling and losing my mind? Well, maybe you feel like you're falling and losing your mind because being tired and wild is not a good thing. I mean, I mean tired is, you know, I ripped out this whole room yesterday. I was tired yesterday. That was a good thing. Uh, you know, the, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, right? But I have a feeling she's tired because of her brokenness. But seriously, with this song, is, not, is this not the tone of our day and age? Has she not even struck a chord here? Maybe not, a, I don't know what, where in the charts the song is. But is it not the tone of our age? That your brokenness is not something bad. It's not something to be covered up or to be ashamed of. It's something good. It's something that doesn't need to be fixed. That your brokenness isn't really brokenness. And that we've gotten so used to identifying with our hurts that they now define who we are. And we're confused and hurt, but we want to shrug that off because there's nothing wrong with us. Our sin is not sin. It's who we are, and it's more than okay. It's something we lauded that we don't need help. We're powerful. 
I just never knew it. I had it all along. My power comes from within. I'm superwoman. Hear me roar. I'm not trying to denigrate women by talking about this song like this. I'm just saying that, like, it's okay to not have power from within yourself. She says, we don't need you to define us. I don't know who that you is. Or anyone to. We define ourselves. Does this not sound like Isaiah 14, 12 through 15? And says, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like most high. Yet you will be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. That the same sort of epithet of, I don't need you. I don't need you to tell me what position I am. I've had it all along. I can ascend. I can do all these things. I don't need help. Is it not the same heart? Because if you don't think that we're living in a dark time, I'd say most people probably do, but I think that there's almost two camps of people that think we're living in a dark time. Some think we're living in a dark time because of wickedness. Well, they all think it's because of wickedness, but the definition of wickedness is drastically different. One thinks it's for real wickedness, and the other one thinks that the good things are wicked, and that's why it's a bad time. But listen to those lyrics. Listen to what's on the radio as you're walking through the store. Look at how the world interprets things in the news and, and what they say about things that go on and what they spin it to be and what they even more so expect you to believe, expect you to be, and say with hateful words sometimes if you don't quite match up to their form of righteousness. Because I believe these things are a good test for the real spirit of the age. And Lord, this morning is or whatever time we're listening to this message, God, uh, would you help us listen to the spirit of eternity and not the spirit of just our age? Would you help us listen to your word and what you say is right and wrong? And it's what you would define us as and what you say brokenness is, God. You'll fix it and you'll make us better. But God, unless we recognize that we are broken and we need help, we'll never get better. We'll die in our sins and trespasses, God. So help us, Lord. God, to totally rely on you and to find your strength in the middle of our brokenness. God, we love you, God, and trust you for these things. Speak in your word, we pray. We need to hear your voice. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So previously in Revelation, we looked at John on the island of Patmos. Remember, he was exiled there, that Jesus gave him visions uh, one Sunday as he was spending time with the Lord. He saw Jesus walking amongst seven lampstands with seven stars in his hands. I remember how uh, drastic that vision was. And as we've gone through our Revelation uh, series called The Time is Near, as we've gone through the first few chapters here, the first two chapters we finished, uh, the second chapter last week, we've seen messages to four churches already out of the seven. We saw the first one was to Ephesus, which was the loveless church. And the message uh, comes in verse uh, 5, says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And then the second church, Smyrna, the persecuted church, we saw that Jesus said to them, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
And to the third church, the compromising church in Pergamos, we saw the verse 17 said, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And even every time I read that, man, do we want God to fight against us, his church, with the sword of his mouth, his word? Aren't we supposed to be yielding that sword? How is it then turned against us? That's through compromise. And then the corrupt church last week, uh, Thyatira and 22, it says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. We saw this church had this wicked lady and in an in, in influence in it, um, and they needed to repent of it. But there was no two ways around it, that they were going to face great tribulation unless they turned away uh, from their sin. But today we're going to look at the dead church in Sardis. Uh, and as we look at this dead church, uh, the, the title of today's message is Be Watchful. Be Watchful. We're going to cover uh, just the six verses of chapter 3 that cover this church. Um, 3, 1 through 6. But this church, uh, Sardis, um, it means remnant. Remnant. Uh, we look at Ephesus was the desired one. Smyrna was death. Pergamos, mixed marriage, Thyatira, uh, it comes from Semiramis, which had this uh, ancient worship of this uh, sort of uh, false god and false resurrection, false messiah. Um, next time we're going to look at Philadelphia, brotherly love, and then finally Laodicea, which is the people rule. But this church um, in Sardis, a dead church a dead church does that even make sense i remember learning about oxymorons way back in high school when i was a moron <laughs> like jumbo shrimp jumbo shrimp you know it's this these words that are totally opposite but somehow they're linked together how can it be jumbo if it's a shrimp well it's the a big shrimp but it should be an oxymoron and fortunately this isn't this isn't a play on words here with Jesus. Because how can a group of people who are resurrected by the resurrected and living God be identified as dead? Dead as a doornail. You know, as I was ripping up this room yesterday, I was finding some mouse nests and uh, other things that hopefully is all done with. Hopefully it's old because we caught a bunch of mice and... Uh, you know, I have a feeling it was maybe from before they put on the addition or something. But I was afraid of finding something dead in there. <laughs> I was afraid of what I was going to find when I dug up the boards, when I pulled back the sheeting. And I think that, I don't know if Jesus was afraid of what he was going to find, I don't think so, but as he pulls back the sheeting, as he pulls up the flooring of this church, what does he find? Find something that's, oh, this is where that smell's been coming from. This is what that stench is. Ugh. You gotta wear a special mask, you gotta wear gloves, you gotta get some bleach. And this dead church reminds me of the Pharisees and Sadducees in some way. And as we get into it, we'll see that it doesn't totally remind me of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But just the fact that the Pharisees and Sadducees thought they had it all together, thought that they were alive and that they were doing the right things, and yet, they were so caught up in their doctrine that they missed Jesus. They were so caught up in their self-righteousness that they saw no need for anyone to save them. And they were so caught up in legalism 
that they thought that everyone else should die who didn't obey the rules. In John 9, 26-34, uh, I won't read it for time, but remember the blind man was healed by Jesus. And uh, he says this to them. He says, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where Jesus is from. And yet he has opened my eyes. Uh, now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, does his will, he hears him. Um, and he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered and said to him, you're completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they threw him out. They were like, we're righteous. We don't. But they couldn't see what was right in front of them, that Jesus was God. He healed a man. And that wasn't even enough to open their eyes. But Sardis... Uh, what I've learned from the commentary was a city well known for its softness and luxury. You know, luxury these great items that make our life comfortable. We got super fancy cars with plush seats, someone to drive us around, lots of nice restaurants, beautiful uh, sidewalks and trees, and just everything was, was nice, softness and luxury. It had a well deserved reputation for apathy and immorality. And we see that, man, when we get comfortable in life, when things are so good, we have so much going for us, we get apathetic. We go, oh, I don't care, it's no big deal. The government can pry, or it's no big deal. I just want to go out and eat. I just want to go have fun. And all our needs are met. And so there's no struggle physically. And so we quickly begin to struggle spiritually. I think that's why God allows us to suffer sometimes. That we might not grow apathetic. We might realize we need him. In Sardis, there was a large stately temple to the mother goddess, Sybil. And it's not Sybil Shepherd or that show from the 90s. But this mother goddess was honored and worshipped with all kinds of sexual immorality and impurity. And are we beginning to notice a theme here of sexuality and idolatry? Of sexual immorality, rather, and idolatry. And they are linked without fail. In reality, and as the scriptures point us to it. Because the worship of God always, the worship of anything but God, excuse me, leads to, always leads to sexual immorality. Why? Well, because it's a perversion of what real worship of God is. Because worship of God is even designed around sexual purity and sexual holiness. God made us to be sexual creatures. It's why there's men and why there's women. For that reason. That, that might happen and growth would come out of it. Because marriage is meant to be a picture of God and the church, of the intimacy between God and his people. That when you and I worship and we're truly with him, there's a joy and there's a pleasure and there's a closeness there to God that is very intimate. I'm not saying that you need to do anything weird in worship, but that same sort of connection to your spirit and heart is very similar to the sexual one. In fact, it's like the sexual one amplified without any of the other stuff that goes along with it. And it's interesting because any time in the Old Testament when Israel, God's nation, went astray, what did he call it? He called it adultery. He called it whoring. You guys are like prostitutes. And who didn't even charge for it? And it was all against God. And again, not that God desires a sexual relationship with you and I, which again, when you look at other areas of Scripture and see how Satan and the enemy will twist that and 
strange things come out of it, but we see that God's desire for a relationship with us is supposed to be so rapturous in nature and it's so tied to our spirit and love and what our relationship with him gives us that it's inseparable. That if you're in the throes of sexual immorality, you can't have intimacy with God. But if you're being intimate with God, your needs are met. And as soon as we begin to stray from him and turn to the flesh instead of the spirit to fulfill our desires, we go quite far in the wrong direction very quickly. And that's not to say that you don't need to get married or you and your spouse don't need to be intimate together. In fact, that's the opposite for most of us. Paul says he wishes that all could be like him where they're devoted to the, the ministry full time and not married and not involved and not distracted in certain ways. That's not the way God designed us. That that's a special gift that's for very, very few, if any. And that's why you see all the problems in Catholic Church because they're trying to take this ordinance that's for a gift for very few and make it an ordinance, a law for everyone. It's no wonder they quickly turn to perversion and molest molestation. It's not meant to be that way. God says, if you need to get married, get married. It's a good thing. Just know that you're going to be worried about paying a mortgage as well as taking care of the church. That's where a lot of apostasy comes from. Apostasy is the abandonment or renunciation of religious or political belief. And I believe that that ties in with apathy, like we're going to read here. I mean, you get apathetic, and so you don't really care, and you get involved in things, and all of a sudden the things you used to care so much about, the truth of the scripture, well, I don't really have to hang on to it that much. It can't really be what that means. And a lot of times when you find a major Christian turning on their fundamentals of the faith, even just, you know, it doesn't have to be a major Christian that's famous, it can just be anybody. But rest assured, because what's a major Christian? Rest assured, it's likely because there's sexual immorality involved. Your friend turns back from following the Lord. Did they get involved in something? More than likely, they got involved in a relationship. Or they got involved in something they shouldn't be looking at. Or perhaps they're just condoning some form of it. Homosexuality is not wrong. Because they've begun to let go of God's word in other ways and begin to trust what the world teaches about morality and sexuality in our bodies, which is different than what God speaks. And it seems everywhere we look in the scripture, like in Sardis, major cities were full of it. The societies that these believers lived in were overrun by it. It's everywhere, and it's everywhere in our society as well. Sex sells, right? And I don't even need to talk about it anymore because we know it. It's so blatant. It's everywhere. And unfortunately in Sardis and some of these other churches, they were just as much involved with these things as the world around them. So please, don't think that the Bible is outdated or irrelevant. It's just as relevant today. It speaks about the same things that we go through and we live in and the same problems that the church has today that it did then. So let's look at Revelation chapter 3 and we'll read the first six verses here together and talk about it. It says, 
If your Bible's got the red letters like mine does, we know that this is Jesus speaking directly here. And it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will uh, not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk, uh, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We see that this is to the pastor, leader, messenger of the church, just like the other letters, that's who the angel is. But again, the main message from the church always flows from God to the pastors to the rest of the church. I don't want to say top down because we're all on equal footing before God. Um, it just so happens that the pastor gets the message and it's his responsibility to disseminate God's message to uh, the church uh, at large. He's the mouthpiece. He's not, he's not the head of the church. God's the head of the church. And also the pastor is ultimately responsible for the spiritual well-being of those who are part of the church. If a church is going astray, it's probably because the pastor's gone astray. If a church is doing well, it's probably because the pastor's doing well. That there's this tie there. Not that it's all his responsibility, um, you know, a church can do real well and have a pastor that's falling. A church can do real bad and have a pastor that's fantastic. So it's not this one-to-one -one thing, but that there's this responsibility there, the pastor to, to shepherd the flock and uh, do well with the message given to him by God. And I have to wonder, did the dead church pastor even receive this from God when he got this letter? Did he, did it even mean anything to him? Did he even consider it? That could be him and his church is dead. Or did he go, our church isn't dead. What is this? This is ridiculous. You know, we are so in touch with the time. You know, when's the last time they actually heard from God in this church? How long had it been since they had a living word uh, come to them from the pulpit? That's a sad thing. People come to church and not getting fed. Not receiving the word of God. What, what are you teaching? How to live a practical life, how to get along with your neighbors, like, well, all well and good in its place, I guess, but are you hearing from God? Are you getting into the Bible? Are you, I mean, what's the point? That's why we come, right? To learn the Bible together and worship God together. You know, the pastor's supposed to be like a father for the family, like in 1 Timothy 3 5. It says, For if man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? If I don't know how to take care of my wife and love my kids and guide them and pay my bills and repair things that are broken in the practical realm and the, as hard as the life is, how on earth could God ever expect me to take care of his church? I mean, obviously it is by spirit, but if I don't know how to clean up at home, church ain't going to be neat. If I don't know how to talk to my kids when they're doing something wrong or doing something good, how am I going to take care of people in the church that are doing something wrong or doing something good? I'm not. If I don't know how to love my wife, how am I going to love the church? The church is God's bride. I need to be able to love my bride. 
But Jesus introduces himself here as the giver of the message, as the one who has uh, the full, complete spirit of God, the seven spirits of God. It's not that there's seven Holy Spirits or that God has someone from a triune God to a, a nine-une God. I don't know whatever the word for nine would be. But to the messenger as well, because seven is the number of completion is perfection. This message is from God and it's full of God's spirit. And this is the perfect word of God that Jesus isn't holding back here. Jesus isn't overstepping any bounds here. He is giving the exact message of God to these people. And it's interesting that he hearkens back to the vision he gave John, almost as if to say, watch out. I have total authority and you're in danger. I hold you, but it's me who holds you. It's not the other way around. You know, you're not, you're not holding on to me. And that's the only reason why you're here. Your lampstand can be removed, guys. It's up to me. And all these letters, I think, imply that John's vision was told to each church as well. Because why would Jesus talk about uh, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars and the lampstands and he was dead? He repeats everything that he he gave in that vision to John. Like, that's a prerequisite for getting these messages to these churches, was knowing what the vision was of who God was, of having that explanation there. Now, this is no joke. And John's like, look, I didn't make this up because I'm bitter. I was just hanging out on Sunday and God struck me over and gave me this message. Because remember uh, that these messages were to specific congregations in that day. Groups of people in the city of Sardis in this case. It also speaks to a church age through history, a time when the church exhibited uh, the characteristics of this as a whole. But I believe it also can be a kind of church today where you and I uh, yeah, we might be in the Laodicean church age, but that you and I church or a church down the street, hopefully not our church, is a dead one. Not hearing from God, not doing the things of God, if you care less, as apathetic as out in the world, committing all sorts of idolatry and defiled. And it's interesting, he says, uh, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. I'm taking this verse kind of out of order. Uh, on purpose, but he says, strengthen the things which remain. In part, uh, he says that I think that those things that remain are the, the few names that have not defiled their garments, as we'll look at later. But I think really it's the things of God in their lives. That whatever it may be that's godly in your life, you need to strengthen it because it's about to die. It's like you've got this little plant and it's about to die. You've got to strengthen it. You've got to, uh, you know, if you're sick and dying, right, you've got to eat. If you just would eat, you'd be fine. You've got to take your medicine. You've got to go to the doctor. That's what he's telling them. Because maybe they have Bibles, but they're covered in dust. They don't read them. Pick it up off the shelf and read it, he's saying. Otherwise, you're about to die. Maybe they pray once in a while. They haven't prayed in years. Or their praying is so rote that God is not in it. Jesus is saying, pray more. Pray to the Father. Maybe they're just in and out of church, too, when it's convenient. Oh, it's nice out, so we're going to go do this. Or, oh, well, i got to go... Monday morning, I've got this idolatry conference and I can't make it. Or Saturday night, I'm out at the temple. So I'm, you know, maybe I'll go to evening service. And then you don't go. Jesus is saying, go regularly. Because these things can be revived. They're almost dead. But they're not dead yet. But there's not much time. You don't have time to play around. You need to get serious about the things of God again. Or else you're going to die. They're on their deathbed. They're ready to die. If you continue to do nothing for another week, that could be it. 
It's dead. It's gone. You're not going to care. You're never going to pick it up. You may even give that Bible away. And he says their works are not perfect before God. Everyone else, God had the commendation for them, right? Like you're doing this, this, this right. And he says, you've got works. You're doing stuff. But it's not perfect before God. It comes up to God. And even if they did anything, it doesn't smell. By the time it gets to heaven, God's like, this ain't for me. This ain't perfect. This ain't holy. This ain't right. Not that God wants you and I to be perfect, but the sense that what they're doing is so defiled that it's not for God at all and God can't accept it. It's, it's not the sacrifice he's looking for. And Jesus, who has the spirit, uh, has the perfect spirit of God, is telling them that their works are not done in the spirit, by the spirit. That's what makes work perfect, is when God leads and God provides, and you and I are obedient no matter what the outcome. It's not whether it's packaged right, whether it's got the right words on it, is as much as it is, this is what God says, this is what God wants us to do, and we're gonna do it. You know, I'm sure God gave Noah plans for the ark, right? I don't think that every nail was driven incorrectly that the tar was necessarily the neatest in every spot, that, you know, maybe one of the floors was out of level. I don't know. I don't know how perfect Noah made it, but he did it, and it worked, and it was led by the Spirit of God, and that's what God is looking for. But Jesus says, be watchful. Be watchful. Be watchful. Be awake. Be vigilant. You know, one of my favorite scenes uh, from The Terminator, uh, I saw the movie when I was 11, uh, so that says a lot. And my kids aren't going to see when they're living. But in Terminator 2, when they send the robot back in time to protect them, he's standing in the window all night while they're on the run from the other Terminator that's trying to kill them. Uh, he's standing in the window all night, guarding them while they sleep and rest and take, uh, tend to their wounds. He just stands there still all night. The, the scene goes from him standing there. Uh, it gets dark and it's light again. He's in the same position looking around. Like this machine doesn't need to take a break, doesn't need to look out. He's watchful. And God understands that you and I are not machines. But that's what he wants us to be. To give strict attention to, to be cautious and be active in our spiritual life and in our practical life. Not to, you know, live in fear, but to be watchful. Because we don't live in a safe time, especially spiritually. We live in one of the most dangerous spiritual times in all of history. In fact, it's going to go a little bit longer and then God's going to say, I got to take you guys out of here because it's going to be so deceitful that even the elect would be deceived if it was possible. And what's the thing that's causing them to be apathetic? Where is their apathy coming from? I believe it's because they're not being watchful. They're not paying attention to the right things. We watched these a couple of videos where uh, they go on these forums on websites and ask people questions and we watched video it's like a robot voice talking about it but uh it was a video about gut instincts and paying attention to them and when it paid off and people would share their stories about how they just had a bad feeling about something or someone or a situation and how uh they began to listen to that feeling and say you know what i'm not going to go home the way i normally go and then they find out something happens or someone was chasing them or you know all these crazy things you have to wonder how many times did people not listen to their gut instinct and that's why they end up on the news as a victim or or worse that's what Jesus is saying here. You're not paying attention. You don't even have a gut instinct because you're not paying attention to the Spirit. The Spirit's grieved about something, 
And you're so hardened to it, you don't even know. You're dead. I remember not paying attention in class because I thought it didn't matter. Because I thought I knew it all. That, you know, uh, and it led to poor grades, getting in trouble, and setting bad precedents for my life. Uh, yeah, I may have been a smart kid uh, in the 99th percentile in grade school. But by the time I was in high school, I was not accomplished. I was not a good student. Uh, my grades were reflective of that. Uh, I didn't think it mattered, but the older I get, the more I realize how much it did matter. Uh, and, you know, my Latin grade now doesn't really matter, but if I had done better in it and paid attention, I would know more Latin and perhaps I'd be more disciplined in certain things. But for heavier matters, the same goes for us spiritually. Again, like the times we live in, these are the last days before the end. Jesus has a parable of ten virgins that we're familiar with in Matthew 25. Uh, read that if you, if you don't have time. Uh, we don't have time now. Read it for homework if you're not apathetic. I'm just kidding. Uh, but seriously, these virgins were supposed to be ready. Half were and half weren't. And half got locked out because they were apathetic. They said, oh, we'll get around to it later. We'll have plenty of time to stop at the gas station on the way there. Nope. They don't have time to do it. You got it. When God puts something on your heart to do now, you need to do it now. And what, what's the cure for this apathy, for this wickedness, for this death? starts with remembering. And the best way to be waking out of spiritual death is to remember Jesus' death and his resurrection uh, three days later. Is to remember the cross. Take communion. So what God wants us to do it is that we would remember him and not forget, so to speak, where we came from in him. And that's exactly what Jesus said next. Remember where you came from, what you received and heard, that you received Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit, and you heard. You were a living church at one time, but you're dead now. You heard the word of God. I remember first being in church after becoming a believer when I was 22 and sitting there. I don't know if you remember the old Maxell commercials for the tape, the guys on the couch. And he's like, got speakers on and it's like blowing them back. Like, you know, the sound is so good and so powerful. It was kind of like opposite. I was like leaning forward and it was, the word of God was like over me. So good. And I was just, you know, kind of zoned out like fire hose of water on me. And I'm just, you know, loving it. So, you know, maybe not understanding half of it, but it's just, it's a rush. God bless you. It's exactly where I needed to be. And Jesus says, hold fast to those things. I think he says that because if we don't hold on tightly, we will drop them. If we don't hold on tightly to the Word of God, we'll quickly begin to, to shift it and change it and make it into anything we want it to be. We need to hold fast to it. I was just, uh, thinking yesterday about family vacations, how I need to take my family on a vacation. It's been a while and thinking about my childhood and things I did and some of the things I want my kids to experience and have fun with and have these great memories together. And I think about roller coasters. And how much fun it's going to be. But you got to hold fast. I mean, you're holding on there, right? There's times when it doesn't always click all the way in. You hold on tighter. But, you're, you know, at least on a major amusement park, you're probably safe. It's not like, you know, you hear about these horror stories, people flying off rides at carnivals and stuff. But you got to hold on to you. You got to hold on. And you got to hold on to your stuff. The coaster's hanging on to you, but you got to make sure your cell phone's all the way in your pocket. You better take off your hat and wrap it around your, your hand or your belt loop. You better put your glasses in your pockets, anything like that. You don't bring that big gulp on the ride because it's going to go flying. Some people can't even hold on to their lunch when they're on the ride. So that's why it's good to sit in the front. <laughs> uh, the back's fun too because it whips you over faster and everything. 
But zero, I think that's similar to Christian life. A Christian life more than any other is going to be full of ups and downs, wild times, scary times, dark times. And we got to hold on. The coaster, Jesus, is hanging on to us. The Holy Spirit is hanging on to us, but we need to hang on to the important things. Because if we don't, eventually we're going to think it's wise to unbuckle ourselves from the roller coaster itself and think that we can fly and we can do it on our own. And I believe I can fly. I can believe I can touch the sky. You can't do anything. We're dust. But all that is for nothing. It's going to be lost right again. I don't care if they hold fast all their lives. If they don't repent too. Because you can't serve God and idols and mammon. You can't hold on to the things of God and to the things of the world. You cannot pursue holiness with God and continue to do wickedness. It does not work like that. You can't continue in wickedness and not repent and expect things to get better for you spiritually and expect to have a word from God. It doesn't work. You can repent and God will answer you right away and lift you back up if need be. But you can't go on thinking that you've got it all together. You need to be broken before God. And this church wasn't. And this was God's last ditch effort to get them to be broken. Guys, you're dead. You're dying. But there's hope. You just have to, do, you have to hang on. And he says, therefore, in verse 3, if you will not watch. He says, all you have to do is pay attention. All you do have to, is have to watch. All you have to do is look up. But if you will not it's not that they can't. It's not that they don't have the tools at their disposal. It's a matter of their free will. If you will not watch, Jesus says to them, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. I don't want God coming upon me as a thief. I don't want my life robbed of everything you could have had if all I had to do was watch. If I told you that uh, you won the lottery. Not me, because why would I believe, be believable? But if someone t- who is rich said, you've won the lottery, and I'm going to give you a billion dollars, but it's coming UPS tomorrow, would you not stand at the window, be down the street, waving a flag, this is where my house is. Come and get it. Do we not do that with the pack of Q-tips we got on Amazon? Is the delivery truck here? You know, as soon as we click order, we're looking out the window. That's what Jesus says all you have to do. You just need to watch for me coming. I'm coming back. Yeah, you know, we got something for the kids the other day, something for the Nintendo. And Jake's like, when's UPS coming? I said, I don't know, but he's coming sometimes today. If he's got a lot of packages, it might not be too late. If he doesn't, he'll probably be a little earlier, but I don't know. We just need to watch. That's all God wants them to do. That's all we can do is watch. It's up to us to do that. You know what? People don't heed warnings. People don't pay attention. I don't either. There's a lot of times I'm not paying attention. How many times we do something silly? You go, wow, I totally wasn't paying attention there. I was doing something last night, and I was uh, tired because it was the end of the day of, of uh, doing this stuff all day. I started to realize, like, what am I here for? I, I couldn't even pay attention anymore. Um, but we need to do that. You look at this coronavirus that's become a pandemic and spreading around the world. There's a medical mask shortage now. We have medical masks at home because we thought we might need them one day. And not that the mask might even be enough for this thing. Apparently, it's spread through the eyes as well. But there's a shortage now. Just like with the ten virgins and the five who didn't have fill up their oil. They went to go get oil and they didn't have it. They didn't have it in time. 
yeah, you can order your medical mask online, but it won't be here for 30 days. Well, coronavirus might be here tomorrow. I don't know. Again, I'm not saying to live in fear. I'm just saying to watch. And I think we don't watch because we don't believe it will happen. I think this church stopped believing the word of God, stopped believing it was going to happen, stopped believing Jesus was coming back, that they could just live whatever way they wanted and still do their religious thing and they'd be okay. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You doing that means you're dead. If you're alive, you're going to be watching. Dead guys don't watch anything. Alive guys do. Maybe, you know, uh, trying to get my kids' attention for them. They're watching something. It's like they're not responding. <laughs> they're so in tune with it. They're not paying attention to anything else. And that's the same thing. We're so in tune with the things of God. We're not paying attention to the world in the sense like, oh, I don't care if I don't win the lottery. I don't care uh, who wins the Super Bowl this year because I'm, and for me, that's probably a bad example because I just don't like football. I like hockey. But, um, you know, you're so in tune with the things of God, the things of the world fade away. But the opposite is true, too. You're so in tune with the things of the world. You're so wrapped up in who won the Oscars and who's on the front of this magazine and what the top ten is. But you don't know a thing about the Word of God. You don't know what's going to happen, when he's coming, what it's even going to look like outside. And that's what Jesus is saying to the dead church. It's one thing if you're not a believer... And you don't have these things. But if you're the church, if we are the believer, if we are Christians in name and go to church and apparently know things of God, but we don't know anything about God and about the ages coming back, that's something that's seriously wrong. That's like, bro, you're almost dead. We better get the paddles and shock you because it is not supposed to be like that, guys. As believers, we are supposed to be the, be the most woke people ever. And not in the way the world thinks woke is. We don't think it's going to happen. We don't pay attention to history, to world events, to all the factors. People were unsanitary in the past and it led to other outbreaks. Yeah, we're more sanitary now. But now you and I can hop on a plane, a car, a bus, be on the other side of the world before we even have any symptoms. And we've already exposed everyone we've touched and come in contact with. If that's not a recipe for epidemic, I don't care what it is. I don't care how smart the CDC or WHO are and how capable. I'm glad we have organizations like that. I don't necessarily think they do everything right, but... You don't think it's going to happen again? I think the, the thing to them, they know it's going to happen. Bill Gates had a thing. Someone else did a study. It's predicting this would happen. But the cost of doing what it would take to stop, to prevent it, you know, if we don't want it to spread, what would we have to do? Shut down all airfare all over the place until China gets it covered. Until the, you know, every city where there's Chicago, Seattle, Texas, somewhere else, tenant, you know, wherever it is, to start quarantining immediately. But that would cost too much money. And so we weigh the risk and say, oh, well, if 10 people die, it's not a big deal. If 100 people die, it's not a big deal. Well, it's a big deal to the family of those 100 people that died. But it's not a big enough deal to the world yet. And that's the same thing with us spiritually. We need to watch out. Oh, it can't happen to me. Our church is fine. Oh, it's okay. And it's this slippery slope that quickly goes, well, at what point is the cost too much? And I think, unfortunately, with the spiritual realm, when we're deceived, the cost becomes so great, we don't even know how much it's costing us anymore. Oh, it's just an affair. Oh, we just got divorced. Oh, our kids can do that. And oh, it's just a little pot. Or, oh, you know. If you think that, if you treat it that nonchalantly, it's already cost you too much. Jesus says, you know, watch out. What you thought was a good move was a mistake. What you thought was completely safe spiritually is an open grave. 
And he says, I will come upon you as a thief. And we watched another one of these videos about a former cat burglar sharing all these things. And he's like, the only thing that ever really scared me was the thought of a homeowner with a gun. And that's, you know, I'd either run or surrender right away. That doesn't tell you something. But he would come in. Oh, people are, he'd look for the lawns. Oh, the lawn is well kept. The house is nice. They're probably at work because they're a responsible person. I will go before lunch or after lunch. Sometimes people come home at lunch. But that the church would be so oblivious to the things of God, the signs of the times, going from staring up and looking at heaven during the ascension. Jesus rises, the disciples are stuck staring at the sky. They're getting their neck all crooked. And two angels come over and go, guys, you got to be busy. He's coming back. You'll see him. You won't miss him if you keep one eye in the heavens, but you got to be busy about your father's business. And I think it's sad because this church has grown so apathetic that basically they would have no idea Jesus was even back unless he slapped him in the face and said, I'm here. I've come to rob you, so to speak. But Jesus isn't a thief. But he'll come back as unexpected as a thief if we're not paying attention. We need to get that driveway alarm. You know, listen for him. Listen for that rapture trumpet. But you will not know the hour if you are not watching. We don't know the exact second, the exact day, but you'll know if we're watching. If we're paying attention spiritually to all things as best as possible in the scriptures by the Spirit, we'll have a pretty good idea of what time he's coming back. And even if we don't, even if we have no idea what day he's coming back and we just know to watch, if we watch all the time, well, you can't miss him then. Even if you have no clue when he's coming, if you watch every day of your life, he comes back 10 years from now or a day from now, you're not going to miss it even if you have no idea what time it is. But literally, it could be any minute. Israel's been a nation since 1948, if my understanding of the prophecy is correct. That generation that saw that will not pass away. My parents saw it. They were children. They haven't passed away, thankfully, yet. They're getting old. But if my understanding of that is correct, how much time do we have left? Plus, you take that into account. You take Iran, Russia, China, this outbreak, Australia on fire, California wildfires, and I'm not saying that I think some of the, so Australia was largely caused by arson. California was largely caused by neglect and other things. Uh, volcanoes in strange places, earthquakes all over the place. Exactly what Matthew uh, 24, 3 through 14, Luke 21, 7 through 19, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 talk about. You know, there'll be earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, says in Luke, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. You know, that's not even against the fearful sights in the heaven, UFOs, asteroids, strange objects. You tell me it's not time? Is this not waking you up? Is this not shocking your heart back to life? Wait a minute, guys. This is it. Because we're here. Are you watching? Because it's not me telling you to sit up and pay attention. Why would you ever listen to me? It's God telling us all to in the scripture to watch. Because the warning is, is that if we don't, we will miss his coming. Because when we stop paying attention, we stop caring about the reality of scripture and life and time. Because we get caught up in the other things. We get raptured by the things of this earth. We might just miss getting caught up into heaven. Because we grew so apathetic, we turned our back on the faith completely. We were announced in an apostasy for a name that the world would say we're alive now and not some backwards religious fanatic. We've come to the light to see that this, the Bible isn't literal and the things in the Bible aren't true. That's not 
alive. That's not waking up. That's going to sleep and going to sleep so much that you're going to die. I love that Jesus, as we get close to the end of it here, he says, you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And even in this church that is straight up dead, in this city that is completely wicked and overrun by idolatry and sexual morality and apathy and riches and wealth, there's still a few people who are genuinely saved, genuinely watching, genuinely paying attention, and that their life and their garments spiritually are white. They're not defiled. They're not covered in sin. And to me, that's always a relief to know there's always a remnant of faithful few, no matter how bad things get. I think you can travel almost anywhere and find faithful believers somewhere. It says that they, their garments were not defiled, and that means that the rest of the people's garments were defiled. They were wearing their cross necklaces when they went to that idol. They were known to go to church. They probably even talked at work about how great their church is, how many things they do that are wonderful, while cursing, talking about their sexual exploits, drinking, wild partying. That's not quite the spirit-filled life, is it? But Jesus says about the faithful remain, he says, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They are worthy. That's all you have to do is be watchful. And Jesus counts you as worthy. If you watch for the Lord, if you live a life of repentance, that proves you're worthy. You don't need to do any works. You don't need to do anything to make others think that you've accomplished something or that you're uh, alive. Just love God. And he says, yep, that's my child. Because Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. We realize we're broken and we're broken for God. God, you know, this is totally wrong what I've been doing. He doesn't go, yeah, you're right. It was totally wrong. I knew you'd fail. He goes, oh, my son, my daughter. I love you. Let me, I forgive you. It's gone. Don't even worry about it anymore. I don't remember. Let's go. You're white. Isaiah 42, 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. You're broken. You're hurting. He's not going to break you more. He's not going to put you out. He's going to light your fire again. He's going to revive you and resurrect you. And Jesus says to those who are doing the right thing, hang on, keep doing it. And to those who aren't, Get back on the right track. And he says to all of them, to he who overcomes, those in the church were given the opportunity to overcome. But they had to repent and hold fast. So it wasn't just going to happen. You know, like, just watching the other day, you know, it's like, your dreams don't pursue you. You know, you have to pursue them in a way. Um, and not in this humanistic way, but sincerely, if we want to overcome, if we want to make it through these last days, we need to hold fast and repent. Because if we don't, if we don't hold fast, we're quickly going to go back to the depths of uh, apathy and apostasy. And there's an interesting picture here. He says, in the end of verse five, he says, "I will confess his name before my father and before his angels." That if you're dead, Jesus got nothing to confess of you in heaven. He's not like doing it out of spite. He's just like, "What am I going to say to the Father about you?" There's nothing good in you. There's no Holy Spirit at work among you. I never knew you. Depart from me. You wicked and lazy servant. That's a picture. The other one says, Father, look at this one. 
You know what he did? You know what happened when his parents hated him when he came to me and this is what he did? You know what he did for those poor people? You know where he spread the gospel without fear? Look at this. And just on and on to the father with a smile on his face. And the father's like, I know. It's wonderful. It's what we set apart for him. Even scarier in the verse before, and it says, I'll blot out his name from the book of life. Now, there's this book in heaven. It's got more data in it than the NSA's metadata collection. It knows more about you. It's more permanent. And it's called the book of life, not the book of death. It's about those who are alive. And these people were alive at one point and had their name written in that book, right? John Smith, uh, you know, Sally May, whatever. <laughs> that if these people don't repent and give up their faith in heaven, they're going to erase the name. They're going to take a little bit of white out. And that name's not in there anymore. All they have to do is watch. And I don't think you can lose your salvation like God will just rip that page out. But if you don't want it, he's not going to make you keep it. He's going to do everything possible to get you to repent and turn. But there comes a point when that's it. It's over. And it's before God and his angels. It's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 as we close. says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and I sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, that we would look to Jesus, we would watch for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Because again, this message is to all churches throughout all time. Are we hearing? Are you and I hearing what the Spirit is saying? If we're hearing something, we're not sure. Ask God to make it clear. Seek Him for it. If we're not hearing it all, figure out why. Is there something we need to repent of? Or maybe we're just too caught up in the deceitfulness of sin, our own entertainment and apostasy and apathy. God, if that's the case, God, help us repent. We repent. Take away any apathy and apostasy in us and let us watch for you vigilantly. Not crazily where we're not being any earthly good in the sense where we're just standing there looking up, but where we've got our head to heaven, we've got our mind attuned to what's going on around us spiritually. We're paying attention to the world and not that it would be our pursuit, but just that it would be like the watch that we're looking at saying, oh, our Lord is going to come back at any moment and I can't wait for that special delivery. We love you, God. We trust you. Come back soon. We pray. Bless our family, our friends, your church. Revive any church that is dead, even this morning. or just about dead, I pray. In Jesus' name, we love you, God. Amen. May God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light of